0: Empty. I see no signs of life. Please don't tell me that the human race did not survive. There are no people in the future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. There's no people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go?
1: There are no people in the future. Let me try my people. Come So, so I
0: have a hey everybody, everybody, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Yes, it is Friday, March 1st. We are into March. Friday, March 1st, 2024. Welcome to Raging Chicken's Friday Politics Roundup. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week we break down the good, the bad and the ugly in state and national politics. You can also support the show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash RCpress for all the details. And you can also help out the show by heading to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. Yes indeed. And if you're awesome podcast listeners, hey, we need you too. Make sure to leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen on and leave a comment to let other folks know why you like the show. Little things like this can help other folks find the show. Ooh, boy, oh, boy. What do we got on today's show? Well, a whole bunch today. We're going to get into a whole bunch. So more than 110, more than 110, I think the count is 112 or 113. Hungry and desperate Palestinians were killed early Thursday morning, trying to get much-needed food and medical aid. Some of the dead were gunned down by Israeli troops. Others were run over by the aid trucks attempting to flee the scene. It was an absolutely devastating, devastating warning. And this is the cost of Israeli policy. But we shall see. In a huge announcement, Starbucks officially announced that it will no longer work to oppose unionization efforts by its employees. Now that nearly 400 Starbucks stores voted to unionize and founder and former CEO Howard Schultz is no longer running the show, it seems that Starbucks Workers United will now be heading to contract negotiations in good faith. Now look, we shall see, but this is a big step forward. In a joint statement, Starbucks and Workers United said they will, quote, begin discussions on a foundational framework designed to achieve collective bargaining agreements for representative stores and partners. Now I saw an interview... With uh, Michelle Eisen, who's uh, what you know was uh, ahead of the first unionization effort up in Buffalo for the first unionized Starbucks store. And she was on the uh, majority report yesterday, um, yesterday or Wednesday, talking about um, uh, how big of a deal this is and that she's actually thinks they're serious about it, um, that they've kind of turned a new leaf, so to speak. Are, um, they're going to try to kind of go do this. Now, this, this is going to be absolutely huge for the entire sector for unionization efforts across the country. Speaking of strikes, thousands of academic workers are on strike at York University in Toronto. On Thursday, members of other unions across Ontario joined the picket lines in support of the striking brothers and sisters. Last week, the Penridge School District, yay, the first of the nation to hire Hillsdale-inspired Vermilion education to rewrite their social studies curriculum and English curriculum through a Christian nationalist lens. Yeah, those folks. Well, new school board, new leaf. Seems we're talking about turning over new leafs. Well, they officially scrapped the Hillsdale proposed curriculum. Yes, it was a campaign promise, and they delivered big time. Official, uh, Officially um, canceling all of the previous board's attempts to shove Christian nationalist curriculum down our throats. I could almost hear the tears of Jordan Blomgren in the night. And Illinois' court has kicked Trump off this year's Republican primary ballot, all but assuring another round of Supreme Court decisions. The order has been put on hold pending appeal. Early voting has already begun in the state. Just my two cents... My guess is, is that you're going to see an increase of numbers of Republicans getting out to vote now that this has happened. Just, just, a, just a, you know, hunch. Mitch McConnell announced that he's retiring for the Senate leadership after this year's election. See ya, turtle. Well, let the all-out Senate Republicans' civil war commence. <laughs> it is going to be a show in the Senate from Republicans, that's for sure. Speaking of primaries, coming up, well, Uncommitted, yep, Uncommitted is set to win two delegates from Michigan um, as the protest over Biden's unwillingness to stop the Israeli government's genocidal war in Gaza, just continues. In the Michigan primary, yes, it's almost 17% of the Democratic primary voters voted uncommitted, right, and overtly voting uncommitted on the grounds of to protest Biden's support of the Israeli genocidal war in Gaza. Now, this is going to be a factor, that's for sure. And it's not just Michigan, right? You think that's a fluke? Well, hold on. Washington State, like the state of Washington, Washington State's largest labor union, United Food and Commercial Workers, has endorsed, uncommitted, in this year's Democratic primary. Yeah, so one way or another... The Biden administration is no longer going to be able to kind of brush off these people as a few, you know, kind of few people on the margins, people who really don't need. But this is actually pretty significant. And in one of the most brazen statements of late from Big Oil, Exxon scolded the world in a recent interview with Fortune magazine saying that Exxon and other fossil fuel companies are not to blame for the climate crisis. Nope, not at all. Who is? Everyone else but them, it appears. Yes, indeed. Exxon CEO Darren Woods told the magazine, quote, the world waited too long, unquote, to develop green technologies and that people who are generating the emissions need to be aware and pay the price. And who are these people? You guessed it. You and me. That's right. We're to blame for the climate crisis because we just didn't get off our butts Right and you know generate, build new green technologies. Never mind. Billions of dollars over the years have been put into climate denial institutes, being supported by Exxon and other big oil companies. Millions and hundreds of millions of dollars in lobbying to prevent any kind of climate action. Hundreds of millions of dollars of lobbying going into resisting any subsidies for green technologies, while making sure that the subsidies for big oil and fossil fuel companies continued. <laughs> I just like, I literally, it's like I read the first version of this. I said, "Okay, wait, wait." I, I just, just, I, I can't, I can't even believe this guy is saying this. And after you know reading like the third article about this, you know. For, I'm like, this is unbelievable. They just tipped their hand, basically, and showed us, this is how we're going forward, right? So much for kind of like partners in the transition. No, 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 no. They are going to make sure that they are not going to have to pay for the mess that they so strongly fought for and that is going to be put on our backs. If there is not a better sign that we need to basically rip the subsidies away from big oil and basically ensure that a huge percentages of their profits go into climate mitigation that they help to produce. I just, it just, that's one of these things that's crazy. And what do they mean by pay the price? Well, yeah, we're going to have to fork up the money to actually, you know, build these, build out the new infrastructure, but let's talk about what some of that prices, that price list looks like when they say pay the price. They're talking about things like this. I bet in the back of their brains, they know this is what they're talking about. So, for example, right now, a treacherous treacherous blizzard is bearing down on the Sierra Nevada Mountain Range in California. The storm is expected to dump 10, upwards of 10 feet of snow, if not more. And winds have already reached 145 miles an hour at their peaks. Already. Right? This is following, right, the huge atmospheric river that just basically drowns southern uh, Southern California. Right? And all the climate scientists say, yep, this is a direct result. This is what happens. You put this much more moisture in the atmosphere. Oh, well, so you're, now you're sitting there, oh, California was you know complaining about their droughts and everything. Right, you know, you're complaining about wildfires. So this is actually a solution. Oh, yeah, well, tell that to Texas. Yeah, that's right. The Smokehouse Creek Fire in Texas has now become the second largest wildfire in U.S. history, burning out of control more than a million acres of land just north of Amarillo, that's an area the, uh, this larger than the entire state of Rhode Island. Okay? So that's what we're talking about. Right? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about, say, oh, yeah, the snow. The snow is actually good for the drought. Oh, well, what about what's happened in Texas? Oh, never mind. Texas is a fluke. This is just crazy. And who is supporting those narratives? Oh, maybe people like Darren Woods from Exxon. And this is what it means to have to pay the price. And these folks are just washing their hands of it. It's absolutely infuriating. Well, it's good to know that there's at least a few people out there that got a chunk of change that are going to do something positive with it. Yes, a former professor at Albert Einstein College in New York, right, announced to all the students in front of her, she announced a... One billion dollar donation to the Albert Einstein College to cover all future medical school tuition. That's right, all future. Ruth Gotten's uh, uh, Goetismon, said so Like her donation was the largest ever made to an educational um, um, institution in the United States. I just want to close this out because this is this is great. I was gonna read. This is from uh, what am I reading? This is from uh, the statements of Democracy Now. Um, they talked. They talked about this in Democracy Now. But here it is. The um, United States. Okay, she's a 93 year old woman, and she studied learning disabilities and created an adult literacy program. But she was married to a Wall Street financier who left left the money, uh, left her tons of money when he died in 2022. Right. So she was a professor. She worked with disability kids with disabilities. Her husband died, he was a Wall Street financier, had a big chunk of change, and so she's donating it to make sure that you kind of, uh, no more tuition at this school, right? So Dr. One, um a Blackstock, a physician and founder of Health Justice, said on social media that she hoping, that hoping there is a positive impact on the health of Bronxites, because it's up in the Bronx, home to the poorest congressional district in the United States. He also hopes this helps recruit more black, Latinx, and indigenous students, groups that are woefully underrepresented in medicine that do not have the same level of generation wealth as their white counterparts. Gotisman insisted that the condition of the gift was the school does not use her name, telling the New York Times, We've already got the gosh darn name. We've got Albert Einstein. Right. Basically, making it clear she's not donating this so they have the college of the you know, medical school, the college of Guntenstein. No, no, she's like, nope. This is Albert Einstein. We're keeping that. <laughs> right. This is the money to make sure that we've got doctors going forward that are not going to have to worry about the heavy burden of debt. And like medical school debt is no joke. We're talking 200000 $300,000. It's, it's amazing. Not, um, that's actually, and there's more, right? But anyways, that's crazy. That's, uh, that was something else. Well, look, if you need more progress, uh, PA Progressive Talk, you tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern or YouTube channel, Twitter, or Facebook. And again, it's not just PA. It's PA-based, really, because he's not a PA show only. This is a national, lar- the nation's largest labor radio show, streaming show that's out there. For all the details check out the streams make sure you sign up for the podcast go to the ricksmith show.com for the latest across all his platforms and you got to check out the sisters of the night caucus podcast the amazing pa women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house and they know where the bodies are buried make sure to follow them on twitter at, at the night caucus that's at the night caucus on twitter and subscribe to their podcast on spotify itunes or wherever you get your podcast if you haven't heard the signal is a new podcast from the bucks county beacon the signal is hosted by beacons editor-in-chief cyril micheleko and produced by yours truly twice a month the signal will shine a light on right-wing extremist currents streaming through bucks county and beyond cyril invites guests to provide insight analysis and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer saner progressive roots check out the podcast at buckscountybeacon.podbean.com you can also check out the civic circle that's a podcast, but also by the Bucks County Beacon that tackles politics and policy from a Gen Z lens. Sarah Zhang, Mallory Marson, Alexander Coffey are students from Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And once a month, they chat about activism, advocacy and all the political happenings affecting their generation today. Check that podcast out at civiccircle.podbean.com. And for all you gamers out there, The Game In is a town based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show. And they've got everything for Retro N64s, latest consoles, video games for all platforms, and loads of collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And good grades and report cards, get your kids discounts too. Got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, they've got you covered. Check them out on their Facebook page or follow them on Twitter at TheGameIn, that's with two N's, at TheGameIn on Twitter. Shoot them a message or drop them an email at TheGameInPA at gmail.com. And if you find yourself in the Kutztown area not just the university but the town you've got to check out the heart and hearth deli and smokehouse that's located at 466 west main street kitty corner from kutztown university's main campus the heart and hearth is an american bistro featuring barbecue and french inspired fare all with locally sourced and organic ingredients and if you stop by there tell colleen tell jim the owners of the place that raging chicken sent you a special shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff and follow him on his uh, on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at song of day man That's with two N's, at song of day Man on Twitter. And as you always hear me say, if we want a progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No punches homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as 5 bucks a month. Just head on over to patreon.com slash Press today. Well, welcome, everybody. Good morning, good morning to you. Um... It is the 1st of March, uh, which is pretty incredible. Um, 2024 seems to be flying by for me. Um, I don't know if that's true for you too as well, but it is definitely flying by for me. Man, it's moving so quickly. Um, Here, let's get into some of these stories here. I mean, I I don't know what you say about, you know, okay. Right now, the count from what I see here, Right, this is the article. Yesterday's, or no, this morning's article in the Guardian: um, 112 dead in chaotic scenes as Israeli troops open fire near aid trucks, say Gaza officials. Um, I, I, I don't. Let, let me just say, last night, uh, as I was getting ready, as you know, I was getting ready for bed and stuff like that, some all these, be whatever. kids are in bed and I'm getting ready to go to bed, and I'm always. Uh, I have some headphones on. I'm listening to the BBC. And they're interviewing uh, some Israeli minister, right, Um, or, you know, functionary of the government or something like this that uh, was on there to basically sell the war, right? Um, But what was remarkable to me is that, is how committed the Israeli government is to the slaughter of Palestinians and the absolute refusal to take any accountability for the conditions which they're producing, what they're doing. I mean, so the, 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 the reporter, the BBC reporter asked this, this dude say like, look, okay, there's different, there's different stories coming out about um, what actually happened. Like how, like exact, like, how many people were killed by gunfire? How many people were killed by, by trucks running over them? Um, the Israeli government saying, Oh, we only killed 10. Like, okay, that mean, that you're basically admitting that Yoki okay, only killed 10. So you know the number's higher than that, but then there was also like, uh, and then you have the you know, the uh, um, the Gaza officials saying that you know, that there's a mix of people who were killed with gunfire and people who were run over by trucks. You have eyewitnesses there that said that um, with kind of conflicting takes on what actually happened. Some people say the trucks began to flee to try to get out of there after a gunfire erupted. And then they tried to get out and they were, you know, risking their own life. Others are been saying that there was um, people that were, you know, swamping the aid trucks and then the the trucks were trying to leave and they ran over people there. But regardless, right, it's 112 people dead. And what this BBC reporter was asking was saying, look, you've got to, You've got to at least admit that when you produce conditions of desperation by forcing, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to flee their homes and become refugees without food, without access to water, without access to adequate housing, people are going to become desperate, especially when people are starving. And, you know, I, I'm saying it stronger than the BBC uh, reporter said, but basically said, you know, look, you, you know, Israel can say, can you know, the government can say that, okay, we're not responsible for all the deaths, that we only killed a couple dozen, right? But well, they're not even willing to admit that. We only killed about a dozen by firing into the crowds because they posed a threat. Starving people posed the threat. Okay, just we'll put that aside. Fully armed Israeli soldiers in tanks, armored, (laughs) were threatened by
1: starving Palestinians. Okay? I mean, this is like. This
0: is what we hear all the time when you know kind of like like you have like black men are murdered by police in this country,
1: well, you know, like he had the look in his eyes
0: and that's enough to justify
1: their death i mean, it's the same racist settler logic i i
0: it, it, it's astounding so so their threat, okay, so. <clears throat> And then you have, you know, this official from Israel basically saying, well, because, you know, in the past there's been civilian crowds and someone comes up, you know, and they hide, and Hamas hides in the civilian crowds and places uh, bombs on the tanks and the tanks explode, right?
1: Okay. I'm sure that there's a story somewhere where that comes from
0: right we know right that terrorists are ultimately the cowards that use civilians to hide their to hide in right and they care just as little about the civilians as anyone else they're willing that they don't care if those civilians get killed so they'll use them as as shields or whatever right so we know that so we can see it okay it may have happened in the past that that scenario just happened The reason why that Israeli official is saying that in this context is because they want you and me to believe that that's what was going on. That hungry, starving people are all suspect. And not only might there be a terrorist in there, but they might be in on it. And that justifies us killing those civilians regardless of whether or not they had any ill intentions towards the israeli soldiers or
1: even had pose any kind of real threat okay but the Israeli government is out there saying that it kind of, okay, it shot into the
0: air, right? Before it fired warning shots before it trained its weapons on the crowd. He actually said that. And what this, what this British, you know, the BBC reporter was basically, okay. Even if we were to accept that, what you just said, even if we're going to accept your narrative as
1: plausible, the reason why you have all these starving people
0: at 4 a.m. in the morning camping out, waiting for the arrival of AIDS trucks is because your war has produced these, these starving people you have committed. And again, they didn't say this, this is me, not the BBC. They, you know, they, they, Israeli government and actions have have committed a violence on all Palestinian people regardless of whether or not they have sympathies for Hamas.
1: And even if, even if
0: these starving people had sympathies for Hamas, that still doesn't just justify their killing. All right. Again, I'm not saying that they're Hamas. They're the people that are waiting, waiting to kill these soldiers. I'm saying maybe these people are like, you know, they're mad enough because they're starving. All their homes have been wrecked. They've been on the run for months now. Every time they're told to go to someplace new where they'll be safe, Israel then bombs the place they told them to go to,
1: killing hundreds of more people. I mean, so that's why when we look at, you know, I mean, When you look at what happened, just what happened in Michigan,
0: right, where you have, you know, uncommitted. Whoa, 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 whoa. Sorry about that. That's a weird thing. You have uncommitted. Let me just get to a different version of this. Sorry. I had this. uh, I wanted to pay attention to this.
1: But, you know, even if you... Well, I, I don't know what
0: to think. So let me just read this by, this is by, um, this is uh, on MSNBC, right? It's another thing. So it says, quote, the Listen to Michigan campaign had hoped to convince 10,000 Democratic voters to vote to choose uncommitted for president for in president Tuesday's primary election as a protest to President Joe Biden's Israel-Gaza policy. More than 100,000 people voted uncommitted that more than 100,000 people voted uncommitted sends a blaring message to Biden that he must stop supporting Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu's brutal war in Gaza. At least that's the message he wants, uh, that's the message if he wants to convince those Michigan voters who chose uncommitted and convince disaffected Democrats and other battleground states to vote to reelect him in November. And this is, this is kind of an important point that it's getting completely misinterpreted in a lot of media, So this is, quote, this is not an anti-Biden campaign, unquote. Layla Alabed, a longtime Democratic activist at the head of the Listen to Michigan campaign, told CNN the day before the election, it's a humanitarian vote. It's a protest vote. It is a vote that tells Biden and his administration that we believe in saving lives, unquote. Biden won Michigan in 2020 by approximately 150,000 votes, He won 83% of the vote in the precincts with the highest concentration of Muslim and Arab Americans and 81% of votes in uh, um, uh, Hamturek, a Muslim-majority city. Abdullah Hamoud, the uh, the mayor of Dearborn, a majority Arab-American city, said in a powerful New York Times op-ed this month that he, quote, firmly believed that Joe Biden was one of the most consequential and transformative presidents that our nation has ever seen since Franklin Delano Roosevelt, unquote. But like so many other Arab and Muslim Americans, Hamoud's beliefs about Biden changed. After Hamas killed approximately 1,200 Israelis um, during its October 7th attack and kidnapped at least 200 people, Israel responded with a military operation that has caused the death of at least 30,000 people. Thursday, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said the number of Palestinian women and children killed by the Israeli military since October 7th was over 25,000. The devastation in Gaza has mostly been caused by weapons the U.S. has supplied, and Biden has generally supported Netanyahu's prosecution of that war. After the size of uncommitted vote became known Tuesday night, leaders from Listen to to Michigan and the Biden campaign appeared open open to finding common ground. Abbas Alawi, a a Listen to Michigan spokesperson, said, Our movement is uh, is actually a favor to President Biden, he said. We're telling you exactly what we need you need to do to win in Michigan. A senior Biden campaign advisor told Politico, "Quote: President Biden sh- shares the goal of many of the folks who voted uncommitted, which is an end to the violence and a, and a just and lasting peace. That is what he is working towards. Right? So you could see the wiggle room that's going on there. This was by M- MSNBC co- um, columnist Dean Obidala, Dean Obidala. Um Just an, an excellent, an excellent kind of discussion." Of what's actually at stake there, right? So I've seen, like, for example, in, uh, in the ABC, ABC, their lead piece on this, um, their, their, their lead for this, their headline for this is anti-Biden uncommitted voters set to win two delegates in Michigan primary boosting protest, right? So they call it an anti-Biden ones, right? And that really misunderstands what the strategy here is, right? A protest vote is a way of sending a, a kind of a clear message in this way. Now, again, I want to make a different, I want to make a distinction between a protest vote in a general election and a protest vote in a primary when there are no other candidates, <laughs> okay? Let's let's just be clear-eyed about this, right, and not say like, oh, well, you said protest vote here, but not in the general election, blah, 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 blah. Right. There are people. So, for example, I just saw someone is kind of like, you know, yabbering on online where you say, well, you know, you you can't be uh, you know can't be against third party protest votes in a general election. And before this one here, I mean, this is kind of like the worst kind of like rude equivalence that you you can you can do. It's like it's just a a travesty of argumentation and kind of honesty. Right. It's like the same kind of stuff. You're in a primary. There are, you know, look, uncommitted in Michigan finished second the only other candidate i can't remember the guy's name who was also running the primary he finished fourth right that means there were write-ins above that person or no it was it was actually uh, uh it was actually uh the, the, the number third was uh what's her face there i'm just forgetting her name this is horrible uh, but the one who won last time the mystical uh one who had a decent following but she dropped out of the race a while ago right so she was she, was st- she made it on the ballot. Right, but you know, she dropped out of the race. So the guy who's actually still in the race and supposedly run it, it didn't even finish, like finished, finished behind a candidate who's dropped out of the race and uncommitted. Right. So let's just let's be real. So there is no real consequence to like, you know, Biden's, you know, whether or not he's gonna get the Democratic Party nomination. Right? That's not happening. Now again, if this builds and this kind of gets bigger in other states with other primaries, where you get an uncommitted um, primary, you know, uncommitted campaigns in different, in different States, you know, that's going to have more of an impact for the general, like, you know, just, but in terms of a narrative, not in terms of his actually getting the nomination. Right. So now it is on the Biden campaign to actually say, okay, what are you going to do about this? You know, they've tried their PR campaign. They've tried to kind of like, you know, be wishy-washy about this. They try to kind of talk tough with one hand and do nothing with the other. And meantime, you have tens of thousands of people that are dead. Now, look, there is like virtually nobody saying, right? And I say virtually nobody. Of course, there's probably some like people on some extreme margins, someplace that are kind of not saying this. Let's be, let's be real. There is nobody... Nobody in any numbers whatsoever who is saying that, oh, 30,000 Palestinians is bad, but uh, um, 1,200 Israelis is perfectly fine. Nobody's saying that. The fact that Hamas terrorists went and slaughtered
1: 1,200 people in Israel is a horror. but to say that because that those
0: terrorists slaughtered those israelis then therefore the israeli government gets all the permission in the world to slaughter as many palestinians as they want that's just absurd and that's that's a horror that that's any kind of legitimate argument in a society that kind of wants to even call itself a society that's
1: barbarism that's blood-feud stuff. And I hate to say this, but this is true,
0: is that the consequence of what Israel is doing here is going to have long-term confidence, or long-term consequences for the safety of Jews in the world. Because once you get in a blood-feud mentality, when it's all about retribution and revenge, people are no longer thinking about people as individuals, as human beings. They're thinking about them as these categories that can be eliminated. They're eliminating their humanness. You see this in all sorts of extremist movements, in demagogic movements, in terrorism, in, 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 in fascism is that you take away the specificity of people and you turn them into a category so that it's easier to eliminate them. That's what happens in blood feuds. The revenge is what matters, not the people. And if you don't think there's going to be consequences of the the murder of 25,000 children and women, that's crazy. Just like Hamas, when they went and murdered 1,200 Israelis, including women and children, and committed war crime atrocities,
1: they think that that's somehow going to bolster some kind of way. It, it doesn't even make sense. there are justifiable grievances from palestinians
0: about israeli policy and how they kind of all that kind of stuff we i mean that
1: putting that aside slaughtering women and children slaughtering civilians you know what that's going to
0: do that is going to give strength to the extremist elements within Israeli culture, and they are going to respond in kind. And right now, because some of those extremist elements are dominating the Israeli government right now, guess what? Now they've got the full authority of their government to wage war in their, and help in their blood feud.
1: And now we see the consequences. But supposedly, Israel, a government, a
0: real government, Hamas is not a real government, right? They have no autonomy over what they do. All the power, all the trade, all kind of border cross, everything like that is is controlled by Israel. Access to food, access
1: to water, I mean, all this kind of stuff. They're a quasi-administrative body. Israel is a recognized government in the world. And this is what they're carrying out. They're carrying out slaughter as official policy. And they fully support what they're doing.
0: And what's horrible about it, what turns my stomach about it, is that when they get asked hard questions about, just like that BBC reporter asked, don't you think that what you're doing in Gaza is creating the conditions for more atrocities like this to happen because of the desperation? They just double down, and they basically say, without saying it, yes, it's justified yes we can kill as many as we can because we felt threatened it is the same exact argument that is being that 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 the us police officers use when they say like i saw a weird look in his eye that's why i killed him
1: it's horrible it's horrible it's horrible but so i mean yeah yeah
0: so we'll see where this this uncommitted vote stuff goes. Right? We'll see where we'll see where this happens. And you know, look, you know, I I'm at, I'm at the point where I look at this, I mean, there's not a change in policy,
1: that's the way I'm going to vote. That's possible. Let's not and let's not get
0: trapped in kind of like this weird binary thinking right, this is another kind of trend I see in some of the kind of reporting or the discussion online, is like when people are organizing to vote uncommitted because of a government's like a legitimate lack of action on part of the government, or a criticism of a government, which they otherwise support, that does not mean, therefore, if you don't vote, if you don't change your policy, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. Are you kidding
1: me? Donald Trump waged war on all these people. Donald Trump celebrate,
0: celebrated the kind of like murder of Muslims
1: after 9-11. He started his campaign with racism. So to, 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 even, to
0: even use that as an argument... Like, so, somehow to say, like, well, these well, folks, what are they going to vote? do? Vote, you know, whether they vote for Donald Trump, they're going to go out and vote for Trump. Donald Trump. Really? That's so disingenuous. And is, that is such an erasure of the legitimate concerns of those folks. I mean, you're talking about people who showed up to vote uncommitted in Michigan's, in, in Michigan's primary. They have family members, friends. From these regions, they've been. I'm mean, not all of them, obviously, but a lot of them have. Like, maybe have been to visit relatives there, and now know that that no longer exists. That whole town, that whole neighborhood, where their family lived, where their friends lived, where acquaintances, whatever it might be, is gone.
1: The hospitals that served it gone, reduced to rubble. I mean, and to like berate people who are voting uncommitted or to dismiss
0: what they're doing as kind of whatever extreme or, or not even extreme, but like kind of like the margins of things that really matter is to erase those people, those culture and that history. Being in a democracy means contending with difficult things. And it means hearing.
1: It means listening and understanding pain. Exclusion.
0: The experience of people who are outside the kind of official discourse. That's the history of protests. That's the history of social movements to make those voices heard to demand to be part of the
1: deliberation, to be part of the democratic process, to be heard. And the fact that now you have
0: Washington state's largest labor union, United food and commercial workers
1: endorsing an uncommitted movement is huge.
0: This is an uh, NBC News. This is reported by Alex uh, Seitwald. So let's read a little bit of this. The biggest labor union in Washington and Washington state endorsed voting uncommitted in the state's Democratic presidential primary um, next month, citing concerns about President Joe Biden's political strength and his support for Israel's war in Gaza. The Washington chapter of the United Food and Commercial Workers has over 50,000 members, making it the largest chapter of the union in the nation. The deeply democratic West Coast state holds its primary on March 12th. In a statement shared first with NBC News after its executive board voted on the endorsement Wednesday night, the Washington Union called Biden "quote an ally to workers over the last four years," but suggested it is not confident that its ability in its his ability to defeat likely GOP nominee Donald Trump in November. "quote Currently, many voters in the UFCW's uh, 3000 executive board feel that the best path is to, um, to have the best nominee to defeat Trump is to vote uncommitted, right? Part of that, what that move is, part of what that move is kind of to do this has to do with recognizing exactly this resistance by lots and lots of people to those Biden's policies. And again, look, this, we've known this has been a problem in Biden from, from the get-go. I mean, I, I would agree when I read earlier on some of the folks that are from the um, um, Listen to Michigan movement, like when they said that, look, Biden has been has been transformative as uh, it, his policy agenda has been transformative as a president. And it, I, I would agree with that. You've heard me say from the beginning of this after Biden was elected, it surprised the crap out of me about how progressive he came out with his and how kind of carefully thought his policy goals were. I mean, it was impressive. I mean, it, it was it was horrific that the that the Republicans and then including Joe Manchin and um, and Kirsten Cinema basically stymied a lot of those efforts and watered them down so significantly. Particularly his climate action, but it's also his his infrastructure bills, also his 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 labor action. I mean, they they just kind of put a stop at that. But there are some aspects of Joe Biden, right, that are are still formed in Washington, DC, spending so much time there and being and 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 having been convinced that there are certain things that you just don't touch, right? You just go out and you say, We support Israel
1: and everything's good. As long as you say that, everything's fine. That's not flying anymore. The world has moved on from that notion, and people,
0: young folks in particular, can make a distinction between Jewish people and the Israeli government and That is exactly what Biden needs to do again. I go back to Naomi Klein's thing. he's like when you know when you see this kind of conflict, right you always got to be on the side of the children not the guns and that's that's
1: in my view that's biden's frame going in it's not about taking sides
0: i mean cuz this is what this is why the unconditional ceasefire that's that is the way to go because you're taking you're taking the side of the children not the guns you want a ceasefire because twenty five thousand women and children have been killed. You want a ceasefire because I'm not sure exactly what the breakdown is there, but you have hundreds of women and children were killed in Israel
1: by the target. So unconditional. Children, not the guns. And you know I and it look
0: this this is stuff, the reason why I'm so upset about this right is because I mean well, one the sheer like horror of the whole scenario I mean like I literally last night I was like having trouble just just giving, getting to into sleep after listening to this guy justify just the murder of of starving people I mean it just it, it's so far beyond what I can comprehend as like what it means to be a human being in the world I mean Give it that. But then on top of that, the failure of Democratic Party leadership, including the President of the United States, and basically being able to move beyond stale, old policy frames and to do something bold here has a risk of
1: losing an election to a proto-fascist. And look...
0: I want to be 100% clear about where I stand on this. It's like, there is
1: no way that I will not vote this fall. There is also no way I
0: will vote for any Republican candidate right now, let alone Donald Trump. And there is a 100% chance (laughs) that if Joe Biden
1: is there on the ballot in the fall, I will vote for Joe Biden. But I'm not going to be out there waving the Biden flag, okay?
0: I'm voting to <laughs> because the alternative is fascism. The alternative is authoritarianism. The alternative is the deeping the deepening of the destruction of any kind of semblance of a, of, of,
1: of, of, a, of, a, of a civil society we have left in this country. But I also know that because of the effed up ways
0: that we think about voting in this country, and this goes to a lot, a lot of my brothers and sisters on the left, who want to think about voting as a personal expression of themselves and it becomes an existential crisis for them about their identity about who to vote for casting the vote It's like look if you' if, if that's your already your mentality, we've
1: lost because building a democracy and fighting for a democracy
0: is not the same thing as voting. Voting is only one moment. Those
1: institutions and all that kind of stuff are moments in this bigger process. If you want to feel, look, I feel good about voting even though I'm not happy
0: with the choices that I have. Right? So let me be clear. When I'm cast by ballot, I still feel good. But I don't feel good because I backed a blue or a red candidate. I feel good because I've participated and I voted. And I want to keep that going. <laughs> I want to keep that action going. And in our system, we've got this, again, effed up two-party system that gives us limited options. And so then people, oh, why don't you vote for a third party? I'll tell you why I won't vote for a third party. Right. Because there's there's zero chance, zero chance right now that a third that if all I do is like, you know, oh, presidential election comes up. Oh, let's see which third party candidate pops up this week. And I'm going to vote for them where there's no infrastructure, there's no background, there's no movement to support it. That's selfish from my perspective. I'm doing
1: that for my feel goods And my anger, I get it. But I know, look, I look, I know, I know
0: there are a few options. Like you know, talk about this in my class quite a bit recently, right? You know, because we're we're uh, it's a class on rhetoric, democracy, and advocacy, and and you know. Introduced a couple times, uh, Martin Luther King's thing about the, you know, riot is the voice of the unheard, right? And I think that's one of the most concise and kind of poignant statements about you know understanding what a riot is, right? But if you read that entire you know speech that he had given talking about this, he was, he was not a supporter of rioting saying this is, is going to cause bigger fallouts than what is here. But at the same time, he's saying, I get it. I understand it. And unless you address the conditions underlying what has caused the frustration and the anger, unless there are outlets for legitimate change, riot will be a result. And, you know, he said, like, I'm not going to, Deny the anger and the justified rage that these people have, but for a movement, we need to embrace this. you know it talks about nonviolence action, all that kind of stuff. I think about like elections in the same way, right? I think about it in the, you know the same kind of framework it's like, look, there are going to be people who are going to be so angry with Biden that feel so left out. That feels so abused, right, by th- these kind of policies like in Gaza and some of the things that feel like that completely let down and erased, right? And some of those people or some folks that think that Biden should be doing whatever it might be, are gonna be
1: angry enough and then are gonna vote third party. Or gonna or not vote in protest. And,
0: again, depending on how many people we're talking about, that could tip the scales one way or another in a close election.
1: Right? And, again, I'm not going to look at those people
0: and shame them. I'm not going to look at those people and say, like, well, you have no justified of doing that. You didn't no, Because I get it. I understand where it comes from. I'm not going to delegitimize that those sets of feelings, Right? Of what it means to be in this system right now. I just have a disagreement over what's the what's the key thing. How do what's the best conditions to keep on fighting? And I'm not one of these kind of like, you know, accelerationists out there that think, like, oh, you know what's gonna happen is that like another Donald Trump term is gonna come, and then people are gonna be so upset that they're gonna demand massive revolutionary change. You show me an example of that working, and that'd be great. I remember this this debate happening like around, like during the during you know uh, Trump's twenty sixteen election. All these accelerationists that were out there, like the Jimmy Dore people, all this kind of crap. They were all out there basically saying that we should go and you know uh, we should not vote. We should vote either not vote or vote for another candidate um, as a protest, and you know because the Democratic Party needs to learn. And then if Trump gets elected, no worries because the people will be so upset they'll rise up and do that stuff. That is just a fiction. That is some kind of Disney version of social movements and social change. Things do not happen by themselves. And if you're going to tell me that Trump's election was unconsequential, well, go tell that to all the women in the country who just lost their access
1: to abortion thanks to the three Supreme Court justices that he appointed. go ahead. Go tell all the the people
0: who've had to spend the last eight years now fighting in school boards and fighting in kind of like kind of uh, uh, town councils. To have to freaking go after and push back against this kind of this right wing extremist kind of courage that are w- currents that have been bolstered by a president of the United States, all the anti wokeism nonsense, all the kind of like anti CRT nonsense, like all the kind of further push to privatize publics, all that stuff, right? So you can't tell me this is inconsequential. And no, people did not like. Wake up all of a sudden and kind of like, oh, I have a revolution. Because it doesn't work that way. Yes, people organize by necessity, but just to hold on to scraps. That is so fundamentally different than defining a positive agenda and vision for the future. This is why I always go back to like the Green New Deal, right? The Green New Deal, that's the kind of policy and program and platform we need to have. Like when it's looking at the future, when it's saying like, we're looking at the horizon here, folks. We're not going to do like, you know, Hillary Clinton going out and saying that, you know, Bernie wants to give everybody a pony and people can't have, everybody can't have a pony. Because that's not the way our system works. Capitalism. That's just not going to cut it. right? Showing people your resume about how much you've accomplished within this system is not a substitute for a real programmatic vision. And I get it. Democratic Party did that for a long time. They went with the experts. Well, the experts have been as problematic as folks. <laughs> so this is where we need to go. Anyways, God, I wasn't even thinking about, I wasn't even thinking about all this stuff. Like I was like, when I start talking about it, they just get me so infuriated. But let me just say a couple of things then. I mean, these are uh, some real positive ends of stuff. I mean, what's happening in the kind of labor world right now is freaking amazing. I mean, there. I, you know, um, Michelle Eisen, she's, uh, you know, with uh, uh, Starbucks workers United. She was part of the original, um, Um, a group of organizers that organized that first store in Buffalo um, that has been at, you know, at the forefront of this fight kind of ever since she's been on kind of negotiating committee and the leadership uh, councils and all this. Um, And now there was a joint statement that was released that says that, uh, that they're going to move towards a contract. Right. And Michelle Eisen, this is uh, and from the uh, um, uh, in, what was it, American Prospect. This is Harold Meyerson's um, words. You know, he starts off with, quote, this is what we've always wanted, unquote, says Michelle Eisen, a Starbucks barista who's been with the uh, company since 2010 and works at the Buffalo outlet that was the first to vote to go union back in 2021. Quote, we wanted Starbucks to actually be the company they always said they were, unquote. She was also interviewed, as I mentioned already, on Majority Report a couple of days ago. and you know, a, a Sam Cedar was asked a couple of questions, you just say, you know, okay, you know, I'm a little skeptical though. Like, I mean, how do you, how, how do you gauge, you know, the, the, their words, you know? And she said, well, we said to them, right. You know, look, there's going to be people that are skeptical. Um, and they're, you know, you, you saying that you're going to do this is just not going to be enough. So we need a show of good faith. And what was pretty amazing is that this, right? So in order to demonstrate good faith, the response is okay, look, we're we're real. This is what the Starbucks folks said. We're real about this. So did and I'll this is for the American prospect again, good. To, quote, to demonstrate its good faith to understandably uh, skeptical workers, the company also agreed to let them receive credit card tipping and also receive back pay from the raises and benefits the company had given to all its employees, except those in outlets that had voted to go union. So you remember this, right? This is one of the kind of anti-union, part of their anti-union campaign, is that, you know, Starbucks, after the union movement really kicked, you know, really kicked into high gear, and suddenly Starbucks, Starbucks, organized organize, organize, new one, new one, new one. Right, as I, so what they started to do is said, okay, we need to stop that. And this is a classic union-busting technique, right, is that you see that the union is gaining power, so then what you do is you give your workers, like raises, right, Cause, cause, and, which is, again, in the hands of the right organizing committee, you know, that they're giving you those raises, which is a demonstration that they could easily do it. <laughs> They've chosen not to, right? So on the one hand, you've got the message of like, oh, look, we're giving, you know, we care about our workers. We're giving you a 5% raise. or We're going to give you a 10% raise. And you you as a Starbucks worker sitting there, and like, oh, that's pretty good. And, you know, maybe I don't want to rock the boat too much here, right? But then, you know, you get an organizing committee, like you see this enough, you just basically say, yeah, well, Of course, does that goes to show you they could have given you that $10 an hour, they could have given you that, you know, 10% increase 10 years ago, where would you be now? Where would we be now? Instead of gaining the corporate profits for their CEOs and the shareholders, if they actually kind of invested in their workers, they call us partners, well, right, I mean, you know, that language was already being used by organizers, right? was already part of the the other approach. There had been enough consciousness built among kind of so many folks within the movement, and then how they use like social media, and blah, 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 I'm getting way ahead of myself. But that point is, is that so, two of the tactics that they used is they said, okay, well, we're going to give all our employees, you know, a, a, a decent raise, except for those who've voted to go union, right? Because, you know, if we get a contract, then that it might be different and so' we're, you know, they want to negotiate for their contracts so we're not going to give their raises we're gonna see how it plays out right I mean so using that but that's a threat right that's a threat to, to non-unions employees that you will not you have your raise taken away from you if you decided to go union the other thing they did is that you know for a long time workers have been pushing to um, allow for credit card tips right so because if you go like to Starbucks right you can give obviously a, a um you can give a tip on your, you know, in cash, right, to a barista, right, or, right, you could, I, apparently, you could do it, um, at, I think, I don't, I don't know if it's all the stores, but on their app, they rolled it out too, as well, where you can kind of give a tip on the app, but workers have been saying, look, a lot of people come and they pay with their debit cards, and they want to add a tip, right, but, uh, you know, S- Starbucks didn't have that ability, they would not allow tips on credit cards, for some reason, And then they decided, okay, we're going to institute that, but again, only at those stores that are non-union, right? So basically what Starbucks did is say, okay, look, yes, we recognize, who knows what they exactly, how they admitted it and all this stuff, but they said, okay, listen, in order to, in good faith, we're going to say we're going to allow credit card tipping now. We're going to roll that out all stores. And all those unionized stores that did not get those raises, we are going to give them the raises and the back pay that they should have gotten, but were denied because of the anti-union campaign. That's a big deal. And Michelle Eisen, in talking with Sam Cedars, who's saying like, look, this is, this is where we want to be. Right. And she, you know, she said it, you know, look, they've always talked about us as partners. Well, this is a way of making good on that whole notion. You know, and she told, she, she talked about her experience because she, she had been to Star Wars, I'm, Star Wars, she went to Starbucks since 2010, right? And she said, you know, part of what drew her to want to be there, right? Work at Starbucks is that, you know, it was the kind of company that at least voiced the kind of values that she supported, right? That they made claims about being, a you know, a, a progressive company. And she said, and since I've been there, I've seen them make mistakes. I've seen them resist things that ran counter to that identity they claimed to do, but they eventually shift, right? They eventually kind of got it, right? I remember way back when, right? Early 2000s, when the, 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 the pressure was put on Starbucks to kind of have fair trade coffee, right? Fair trade coffee, right. And, you know, you know, organic coffee, things about fair trade in particular and Starbucks resisted, it resisted, resisted. And there were people, there were Starbucks workers included who were like, wait a minute, you're always talking about the value of kind of partnerships and global partnerships and treating people fairly and all this stuff. Why wouldn't Starbucks want to be a company that had fair trade coffee? I mean, that's consistent with the identity of the company. But they thought, oh, it might be increased costs and blah, 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 and all this kind of stuff. We're like, well, okay, wait a minute. But if you're a company that believes in these values and that's who your company is, then you do it, right? And it took a while, right? And then, but then they, they changed, right? I don't think all their coffee is fair trade, but like a good significant chunk, right, compared to what it was, right? So, I mean, little things like that. Starbucks would say, "This is something we're going to do," and then then they do the wrong thing for a bit, but then there would be some pushback, and then they would shift and do the right thing. She said she saw this over the years, and then she thought that maybe this would be another one. And she said, "I've been waiting for the time when they realized that they effed." She didn't say effed up, but I'm saying effed up. That they effed up, that they screwed up, and that if they want to be the company they claim to be, then there's a different path forward, and then to to, to turn. And this in chance they did. You know, and I, you know, I don't think it's, un, it's, it's unsurprising that a lot of the reasons why they, they made this shift was because uh, Howard Schultz, you know, their founder and CEO kind of left. Um, you know, Sam Cedar was saying, you know, one point, and I, you know, tend to agree with this position where, you know, look, sometimes, you know, these, you have these people, especially, you know, of uh, uh, successful companies, they built them, you know, they, they built them and they invested all this time and everything like this. And they tend to think about them like their children, like the company, not the people. Right. But they reduce their workers to like, you know, this, this king, you know, the, you know I'm, a, I'm the kind of genteel king that cares about his people. Right. Well, meanwhile, the people are like, we, we don't have any food. <clears throat> I'm like, Oh, you'll get some food. Well, but whatever. And he went, went and go on these speaking tours every time he'd go on a, these speaking tours to try to convince workers to kind of be part you know not to unionize he'd make matters worse because he'd use these metaphors that were just like horrific like about the holocaust and stuff and he like and he was it was all about his personal feelings that somehow oh, I can't believe that he would feel this way about me, you know. But they they got him out of there, right? The, the shareholders and the leadership got him out of there. They recognized that he was being causing more damage to Starbucks, right? Than the workers were. As a matter of fact, the workers were getting more and more support as Howard Schultz was kind of showing himself to be a schmuck. So uh, you know, here they are. So we'll see. You know, I mean, if Starbucks, if Starbucks, if Starbucks gets their contract. You start, I mean, Starbucks Workers United gets this contract with the company. That is going to be such an enormous, an enormous win. Right now, because we've seen all sorts of, you know, and right now is the time too, right? Because right now under Biden's National Labor Relations Board, right? They've basically, Biden has invested in, so putting some teeth into the National Labor Relations Board on the side of workers. Right. So, we've seen, for example, they started actually enforcing, you know, when, you know, things like, oh, when a company like Starbucks, right, gets rid of an employee for union activity, that is a violation of the National Labor Relations Act. And they are going to force the company to reinstate that person, pay back wages and so on, and pay a fine.
1: you know and for a while they were willing to just pay the fines not anymore but up until now all those stores that voted for
0: union like unionizations they don't have contracts that's what they're at that point of pushing for. So they have 400 stores, about 400. I think it's um, Michelle Ison said it on on Majority Report that they have 399, but there's going to be a 400th one that's going to be dropping like within days. Starbucks has like 9,000
1: plus stores. If these 400 stores get contracts.
0: You can bet, and the company is saying, we're no longer going to punish you if you want a union, that's that's up to you. We're not going to stand in your way and we will negotiate with you in good faith. You watch the number of those stores that go union just skyrocket because the fear will be gone, the intimidation will be
1: gone. 10,000 workers will get a union
0: contract and tens of thousands more are lining up. Think about what that does to the labor movement. We've seen tons of labor organizing here. We've seen what happened in Amazon. We've seen what's happened in uh, 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 in fast food. We see what's happened in adjunct labors and things like this. But the thing that you always have to say is that you know again, and union organizers will tell you this: when they you you get you get the union vote, the fight starts again right? Because it never stopped because now, so for that first contract, the first contract is this really significant fight to get to the point where you actually have a contract. Starbucks appears Starbucks Workers United appeared to have crossed that threshold toward a contract, this is going to be amazing. If this sets a precedent in the industry, right for how to treat workers, and that unions are no longer the enemy, but they are in Starbucks language partners. Think about what that would do. So, we're going to follow. So, congratulations to all of those folks at uh, Starbucks Workers United. Uh, I've been thinking about Daisy Pickin a lot um, this week uh, after hearing these announcements. Uh, Daisy Pickin, uh, she was, of course, on a program and she um, kind of uh, got a ways back when her book came out. And uh, it's based out of Pittsburgh. And, you know, we talked a little about Starbucks during that discussion, too, as well. Um, And, uh, you know, just congratulations. I was, you know, Ben, who did uh, organizing work at um, um, at Kutztown University, right? All the whole team, actually, who did the the Workers' United team that kind of worked on organizing fast food workers. I'm not fast food, the uh, uh, food service workers at Kutztown University, um, you know, SCIU, Workers' United, just like huge, huge, like when um, there, but that to see this or here's it bolsters the kind of work and approach they have workers up. The other thing I should mention too, as well, uh, Michelle Eisen also said that one of the uh, what has come out of some of the initial talks for how they're going to do the negotiations, there will be that what the Workers United want is that we want actual workers on the bargaining committees. Right. Not just union leadership or union lawyers making some agreement. No, we want workers there in the negotiations from day one. Huge. So congratulations. This is a big step forward. Uh, Now let's hope we get that contract uh, ASAP. That'd be great. Uh, We also see similar situations happening. Well, you know, other kind of organizing that's happened up there. York University in Toronto, really kind of cool to see that organizing effort going on. Um, that you, they are now on strike. I think the total number, I want to say, I was, was going to say about 3,000 academic workers. York University went on strike Monday. Um, they said the school had not met demands to address an affordability crisis, while some students worried that labor dispute would make them fall behind, as we always hear that. Uh, but striking workers at North Toronto University include contract faculty, teaching and graduate assistants, research assistants, and part-time librarians represented by the Canadian Union of Public Employees, Local 3903. I remember uh, York University uh, had a strike back in um, 2018. Um, I worked really hard to try to get some folks on the show back then about that, um, because uh, it was it was a huge uh, it was a huge strike. Um, it was happening in this wave of strikes, um, but we could never find the times that it would work. But um, who knows? We'll see where it's going. We'll be following that a little bit more. See so if we can get some folks on, because the. Um, um, C-U-P-E, the Canadian Union of um, Public Employees, I don't know if they call it COOP or not, but um, they, uh, and Local 3903 has been really good about um, these kind of like, you know, kind of wall-to-wall organizing, really thinking about um, all workers, not just kind of like say certain classes of privileged workers when organizing educational institutions. And they've been, um, their statements and their work has been really great on that. So I'm wishing them all the luck in the world too as well. Mitch McConnell, of course, is gone. <laughs> well, not gone yet, but he's uh, no longer going to be the Republican leader um, after November. It's still too long, as far as I'm concerned. One of the most consequential and uh, gifted reactionaries that has occupied the Senate, um, and he has no, no, in no uncertain terms, left his dirty. Fingerprints all over um, the degradation of American culture. So, uh, good riddance to you, um, Mitch McConnell. Um, yeah. What else do you want to say? What else do you want to say? Oh, I just you know I that stuff about you know about Exxon and climate change is just that that is so incredibly infuriating to me. I can't even tell you. Um, and I you know I was seeing this news about. What's you know about the blizzard in California, and you know again, I, let, me, let me be clear. We know that there's you know been big storms, big snow, like lots of snow before I'm here, but this, even this, just this seems absolutely extreme. Um, to have winds of right now, winds of 145 miles per hour, with just huge amounts of snow not only to not only to kind of like mention that it is is you know it's life-threatening right but it it also shows that this is uh, this is one of these consequences of climate change I mean this is something that you know has been predicted for decades now this is coming right we saw the atmospheric river in Southern California, and now we're getting basically an atmospheric river of snow. (laughs) An atmospheric avalanche, if you will, is going to be dumped
1: on in the Sierra Nevada area. I I just, I don't, you you know, you, you see this kind of stuff.
0: And... I guess, I guess, you know, it's like one of these things when I think about this kind of weather, I, it feels, I feel a bit awestruck by it. And I, you know, like awestruck in the way, you know, when you're seeing a kind of calamity, I mean, it just, it's just, it's, it's, this is like nature and the, the scale and scope and power
1: It's just it, it. It's just
0: kind of I'm, I'm awestruck by it, and I don't mean like awe inspired, like wow, this is great. It's just it's just remarkable. Like it's that you know that both the the kind of like wonder and fear all wrapped into one kind of seeing this kind of experience, just kind of the sheer monumental power. I I mean I I know I'm saying the same thing over and over again, but it, it it's it's incredible and to see that happening. You know, you think about, I mean, just in a relatively small, well, I don't want to say small space, but in a relatively contained space. I mean, I know this, you're talking about like hundreds of miles and hundreds of miles apart from one another, but you've had, you think about how much moisture just got dumped on Southern California and other parts and all the flooding that has occurred and all this stuff. And now you've got this huge, like just monster of a storm in kind of a little bit north of where all the rain came. And then a couple states over, you've got the second biggest wildfire in U.S. history. You know, they've been, they've been talking for a while that Texas, I mean, Texas, you know, again, it's one of these other places, it's an arid uh, landscape, but when you get drought and flooding and all this other kind of stuff, when you kind of intensify climate when you intensify existing tendencies in the climate and you get these extremes at the same time the fact these are happening at the same time it's like you're seeing what the future looks like of course and again we've heard wildfires are going to be more frequent and more devastating we've been seeing that in california and you know what goes through my brain is like okay you got this huge blizzard You've had all these wildfires, right? You know, th- and that has, that has that has decimated the tree cover. So, what's going to be? You know, does that mean that we're going to have an increase number of avalanches and landslides because the tree cover has been burnt? And I and I recognize that the places that are that you know some of the largest fires were are not exactly the places you're going to get the most snow, but, but you know, you're still getting a lot of snow there, <laughs> right? And you can see how this stuff snowballs, right? I mean, if you get that much snow then you're gonna have and and then say, for example, we get another heat wave that happens right in there, you get this rapid melting, what's just do the math. And now in Texas, I mean, huge areas are just gonna just be burnt to the ground. And part of that is exacerbated by intense winds. Again, it's about it's about you know again what the, what scientists always said about climate change, right? You know, especially the last you know twenty years, is that it's it's going to intensify things, right? You put that much energy, like you know your the evaporation, you put more warmth, right? You put more water in there, it's going to intensify psych- weather cycles, right? It's going to intensify the power that is in the atmosphere, and this is you know here we are, which is one of those things that just you know. When I saw that, you know, those statements coming out from the, the the CEO of Exxon, I just, just couldn't believe it. They were going to try to kind of like take every frickin' penny we have and make everyone else pay the price for it because you know they are going to be fine. It just just kills me. Well, I'd already talked about this in the uh, in the at the beginning of the show, but I'm you know. It was pretty remarkable, you know. I I think about a couple of things. So you see, you know, you, I'm talk, I'm thinking about the Albert Einstein's College for Medicine in the Bronx, right? So, you got the uh, former professor there, uh, a 93 year old uh, um, woman um, that used to teach at the university, Ruth uh, Gotisman. Uh, uh, Ruth Gotisman, you know, it's the largest uh, donation ever kind of given to an educational institution in the United States. Of a billion dollars that's essentially basically say starting in the fall, there will be no tuition for anybody. I to see this kind of like like group of people right students auditorium was packed right, and this group of students to hear this that they were no longer going to have to incur any more tuition bills. look at their faces like sheer kind of disbelief and 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 people just being floored by it, right, was just like, tells you what, the, how much of an impact is had. Not only that, the other aspect of this is when you look at, you looked around in that room, right, when they're, after the announcement, it was an incredibly diverse student body. And that, for me, makes this even better. Right, because we all we all know, like I mean, if you're listening to this program, your chance, good chances are that you know there's disproportional impacts on the way that you know our society works. Right, you know that there's structural racism. You know that, for example, that it can it's not the same thing for you know uh, a kind of like a, a, a white person with uh, you know three generations of college education and so on um, to take on two hundred thousand dollars debt as opposed to, you know, a, a, a Black family, right, who are a person to take on that same amount of debt when they don't have the kind of legacy of, of family wealth, right? It, just basic stuff. So this seriously has, an, has the, the the potential of filling a huge gap because there's also real kind of medical consequences here, right? When you're talking about, about you know, say, doctors in med school is that, that there are worse outcomes, right, for African-Americans and Hispanic kind of Americans um, and other kind of, say, non-white groups, right? Precisely because the, the doctors don't share an experiential history of this. So we've seen, so for example, there's been a long history in medical journals of basically, well, you know, black women, they just they don't feel pain in the same way, right? They have a much higher threshold to pain. And every study that comes out, that's just a lie. That's just racism straightforward, right? That is kind of like, you know, bias and racism, like built into the structure of what goes on. But if you have, if that same black woman goes to a black doctor, right, or a black woman doctor, right, the chances of that, those assumptions being made are, are, are reduced hugely. So the fact that you have got a medical school now that is not going to saddle this whole next kind of generation of graduates with that, with that kind of medical debt is just pretty amazing. Right. And I saw some stories. I I wish I, I wish I'd saved these ones, but I saw some stories right after the announcement was making, you know, they were interviewing a bunch of students there and there was this one guy. uh, I wish I saved this. I was just, it made me feel so good because I'm like, yeah, there's a person that gets it right. Um, And the reporter asked him, you know, how you feel about, you know, about this. And he's like, well, as someone who is just about to graduate med school, has paid tuition for my entire time here, and we'll start like um we'll start with this I can't remember the number he said, but you know with like two hundred thousand dollars worth of debt, he said I couldn't be happier to know that no one else will have to do this again from this school is one of the most joyous days of my life. I'm like, there you go, that's a human being, <laughs> right. Cause we're always told that like everyone is going to resent everyone. And they're going to worry. what about the divisions it's going to call. This
1: dude gets it. Cause guess what? He cares about more than just himself. He knows the stresses
0: that it's causing him and he doesn't wish it upon other people. I mean, come on. Congratulations. Um, anyways everybody that's going to do it for us this week uh i really appreciate you spending some time with us this friday um it's weird i just i just had these kind of flashes come up i was about to say like you know you know stay safe out there in the snow because i've been thinking so much about these blizzards coming to california but obviously it's cold outside here but it's uh um no snow is expected from what i understand but wishing i i I wish you all uh a kind of absolutely fabulous weekend and uh you know uh keep doing what you're doing um some great news out there. Um, you know, it's personally, it's been great to see finally the Hillsdale curriculum fall here at Penridge, which is, uh, which has been great. Um, that is a huge victory, but there's so much more to do so much more to accomplish so much hope. Um, kind of as we move forward into this election season, but I wish you for this weekend to have a good one, friends, family, celebrations, um, cool stuff going around in the world. Um, so, um, thank you. Thanks for spending time here. This has been Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of raging chicken. Want to remind you, you can help support this show by heading over to patreon.com slash rcpress you can become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Thank y'all for tuning in. Have a good one.
1: See ya! See ya!